Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelley Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. This is a Soulfire production. Hello and welcome back, my fellow rebel souls. It's so good to be with you. Happy hump day if you're listening to this on Wednesday when it drops. And if not, I just hope this brings you soul fuel and inspiration and lifts you up wherever you are and whenever you're tuning in. That's what it's meant for. And these conversations are timeless. Although I have to say, today's in particular seems incredibly timely. It doesn't seem timely. It is timely. Cleo Stiller is an absolute badass who's become a really good friend over the past six months or so. She's a fellow Tiller Press author, and we talk a lot about her book, Modern Manhood. Um, but I really, I, I want to, I really want to talk to you guys about who Cleo is. And I'm going to read a part of her bio because I want you to know like the pedigree behind the issues that we dig into today. I mean, this is all, this conversation is really, I mean, around rebelling for so many important social changes. This is truly someone who is rebelling for the impact she wants to have in the world and inspiring all of us to be there with her. And you'll learn more about what exactly that is. I'll tell you in a second, but let me tell you a little bit about Cleo Stiller, my new friend and soul sister. Cleo is a Peabody Award and Emmy Award nominated journalist, rarefied air. She's a speaker and a television host. Most recently, she had a show called Sex Right Now, which we talk about. She's always been at the confluence. She, she's one of those people who sees what's happening in the world and understands the intersection of those things, those movements, those inflection points, and says, let's do something about it. Now is the time to look at all of those things together and not in silos. And you'll hear more about that as we talk. So she had a show called Sex Right Now. And that led her to writing a book that was a number one new release on Amazon called Modern Manhood, Conversations About the Complicated World of Being a Good Man Today. Think about it. She wrote this book. This was published in late 2019. Her book came out only, I think, two months before mine did. Published by Simon & Schuster, Tiller Press, same imprint, which is how we met. And 
So this is the post, this is not post Me Too. This is the Me Too movement. This is post Harvey Weinstein. This is post Bill Cosby. And we had this conversation today, Cleo and I, one day, less than 24 hours about learning that Bill Cosby's sentence had been overturned and that he is now walking free. And so when I say this is timely, I know you guys are listening to this a little bit later. This is going to be month or so old news, but it's still going to feel very present. And we're still going to be working through this because I feel like we had taken a couple steps forward and now we've taken many steps backwards. So this this conversation with Cleo, the work she's done, the book she's written, the work she's doing today around what it looks like in the modern workplace post Me Too and post COVID. And what does it mean to be a good man in a leadership position, especially in the corporate world where those men are in power and how do they pull up women and others into positions of power? So we, oh, this is, it's so yummy. And just in case you weren't already impressed with Cleo's resume, this year, Harvard University's Neiman Foundation for Journalism named her and her work a 2021 trend to watch. And she's also an Emmy Awards judge in the category of news and documentary. It's really incredible. She's somebody who has, she is such a, just a sharp eye, a deep soul and a keen understanding for what's going on in the world and how she can be at the tip of the spear driving those conversations in a really raw, honest, authentic way. That's how her book reads. That's how our conversation goes. That's how you will see her showing up everywhere in the world. And as I say to her in the conversation, to me, that's so refreshing when so much of the news and the reporting is anything but that. And so we dig into the Me Too movement. What led to her writing this book? What does it mean to be a good man today? What does that look like? across all facets of a guy's life. And I love that her book covers everything from friendship and work to parenting and money and sex and dating and all of the things. What does that look like? And more importantly, what does it look like to be a good person today? When we talk about degendering a lot of these conversations and what does that mean? So honestly, whether you're a man or a woman, we are all rebel souls or frankly, identify with anything in between. However you identify, what I took away from this conversation is how we can all step up and be good people in the world and make good decisions and be good leaders and role models and speak our truth. And we talk about mental health and support of each other and helping men live into what it really means to be a man, not this man box that they've been put into for so long. And she even gives me a little dating advice that I think is my new dating strategy. So how's that for a teaser? 
And before we dive in, I want to acknowledge, and I'm going to get better about doing this every freaking week. I want to acknowledge a listener of the week. I love that you guys are starting to light up the fire on Apple podcast ratings and reviews. I'm so grateful. I have said a time and time again, honestly, you guys, I, I hate that it works this way. It doesn't feel good to me to be asking. I'm not asking for this from an ego stroking perspective. And I'm certainly not asking uh, to... I'm not reading these from an ego stroking perspective. I'm reading these because I want to learn more about all of you and what you're getting out of the show. And I want to feel more deeply connected because it lights me up and really just motivates me to want to put this show out. I pay a lot of money to put this show out and I want to keep putting this show out. And so I really love hearing from you. I love feeling more deeply connected and feeling like the community that we are. So I'm recognizing a listener of the week and here we go. I want to recognize Lulu5280. We all have something to rebel for. Every time I hear Shelly speak, I know I need to have paper handy. She is a way of speaking to your mind and heart in the order needed. She doesn't pull punches and speaks the truth that we need to hear so we can move our own divine rebellion forward one bold step at a time. Ah, oh, thank you. I'm going to call you Lulu. Thank you, Lulu. That's amazing. I love that this is inspiring. I love that you get some takeaways and you can, you know, you've got a few things to reference. I really, I'm thoughtful about who I bring on the show to share with all of you. I want to make sure that this is a valuable use of the hour that you invest with me and my guests. So thank you. Lulu, reach out to me. Either uh, DM me on Instagram at Soulbatical or shoot me an email at hello at soulbatical.com and I'm going to send some rebel swag your way. So everybody listening, that's what's in it for you. You get a little, you get a little surprise from me. So I would love to hear from more of you. Rate this podcast, Rebel Souls on Apple iTunes podcast. Um, that's the one I can read most frequently. Um, and that's the one where really it helps us. It helps us to be promoted and, and find more of our rebel souls. So with that, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being incredible, an incredible community of fire starters. I love what we're doing in the world. We're up to big stuff and Cleo is one of us. So let's dive deep into our my conversation with Cleo. Enjoy. Oh my God, Cleo. I am so glad that you and I are finally in all caps having this conversation. Welcome on Rebel Souls, sister. Ah, thank you. I have been looking forward to this all week. Oh my God. As we said off camera, I was just like, it's Cleo week. It's Cleo week. <laughs> like I have been, I have been like dancing around my house saying those words. It has been such an honor and a fun journey to be a fellow Tiller Press author. And now to be able to call you a friend, like just having to gotten to know you over the course of the past, like really over the past, like six months, I feel like we've gone deeper. It's such an honor. I love who you are in the world and the work you're doing. So thank you. 
Oh my gosh. I feel the same. I, you know, and folks will know. So we published through the same um, publishing house and our editor was trying to connect us for months. And I remember hearing about the concept of soul badical. And at the time I, I wouldn't have wanted to tell him that publicly, but what I was thinking was I need that in my <laughs> life. Like what the hell? So then we met and then you were cool as hell. So. Oh. Thank you for that. Thank you. And we, well, maybe we'll talk a little bit bit about our journey. So Tiller is what brought us together. And then we've been able to go a little deeper and you've actually, you were diving into Sylbatical with me and helping us maybe possibly bring it to the screen. Oh my God. There is a video component to this show. So for if folks who are watching this on, on YouTube, I'm just pulling, and if you're not, I'll describe it. I'm pulling a, my copy of Sobatical out, which has probably 400 post-it notes inside of it. Um, I have spent a lot of time with Sobatical. I love that. And mine is, you might even have more than me. Oh my Here's God, mine. I have more than <laughs> you do. We've never done that before. Oh my God, we never have. That's hilarious. Oh my God. So as, so as Cleo and I started talking to each other and getting to know each other, we had this idea because, well, you'll get to know the fabulous Cleo Stiller. She's done a whole lot of work as an amazing journalist and reporter and author and advocate for really important social change in the world. Mm. And you looked at Sylvatical and you saw what I think I saw early on, which is this could be the next eat, pray, love. This could be a wild. And so I'm forever grateful that you spoke those words out loud and we dove in together and said, why not? Let's create a feature film treatment and just see how the world responds. So it's out there. We're letting the universe do work her magic and we'll see what happens. And just so folks know, the feature film treatment version of Sobatical is called Rebel Souls, which was something I had thought of without knowing that you were relaunching the podcast. Um, so it really just feels like the universe is going to take this one and run with it. Mm. Yes. So sister, this is all about you. I want to dive into, I love your book, Modern Manhood. I want to dive into your story and what you're rebelling for. So why don't we start from that place? My favorite question, Cleo Stiller, what are you rebelling for? Well, first, I just want to say that that is one of those. So I'm a reporter. I interview people all the time. And because of the work I do, I get interviewed all the time. Um, And generally speaking, I can answer any question very easily. But when I thought about what am I rebelling for, it felt like a question that had an arrow point at the end of it. And it was like really piercing my chest thinking, holy shit, I don't know. Like, what am I? rebelling for. And I, I think ultimately what I am rebelling for is a mission to spread and create, um, education, social change, and a more connected community on multiple levels. I think initially I would have seen that as like something professionally I really pursue but the more intentional I am in my personal life, 
you know, I volunteer, like this is something new as well. So um, I'm a journalist. I have been a journalist for many years. When you're a journalist and you work for a major news organization, you are not allowed as an employee of that news organization to be officially affiliated with any political party. And you really have to think about the way that you show up when you're not on camera, because it really does ultimately reflect A, your credibility as a journalist and, and B, the news organization you work for. And I worked for Bloomberg and then I worked for Univision for many years. And so, you know, then I got the book deal and I went on book leave and then 2020 happened. And this was a year of immense social change for our country. And I realized for the first time since I became a journalist a decade ago, uh, not affiliated with a major news organization, I thought, wow, I can really show up this year however I want. And I went really hard on the social movements. Um, and I make sure to this day, I make sure that at least a couple hours a week go to um, social causes that I truly believe in. I love that. And I see you showing up that way, which is, it wasn't planned, but there, I don't think there's, there are no coincidences. I mean, let's be clear about that, that I described you as somebody who's just such a beautiful advocate for social change, because that is how I think about you. And that is how I see you showing up in the world. And honestly, that is, I'm holding up your book, Modern Manhood. That is what modern manhood is all about. So yeah. Okay. There are so many beautiful layers to this. Let's start peeling the onion <laughs> together. Sure. Say, okay, what, what led you to this place of even being this, you know, a, you know, a, a bright, well-educated woman who's, you know, got, you know, you had your own TV show at the time, right? Yeah. Like, so you were, let's talk a little bit about your journey. Cause I think that's helpful background for our rebel yeah. souls community to understand your journey and what led you to being a woman writing about what it means to be a modern man in the age of me too. Right. <laughs> Which is sort right. of like, I need to get my oh, head interesting. Right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, or, or not. Right. But I, I love, I love your story and I'm sure there are pieces I don't know. So will you take us back a little bit on like, and I love what journeys are like these winding roads because we expect stuff to be straight arrows, like from point A to point B and it never is. Amen. And I will say uh, I personally am someone who have to keep reminding myself that life is not linear. Um, so I, I am, uh, from born, I was born in New York city to very liberal college professor parents. They, my dad was a playwright. My mom was a dancer. Um, and because of that, we really struggled with money growing up. And, um, I thought, okay, well, there's one thing I'm not going to do when I'm an adult. It's like, I'm not working in the arts. I'm not struggling for money. And so right out of college, I worked at an investment firm, a biotech investment oh my firm, God. which is wild. People were like, whoa, really? And I did that for several years. That sounds like a should. I should do the thing that's going to make me money. <laughs> this is why, you know, folks who follow you so closely, who've read the book, who listen to your interviews, like when I read Soulbatical, I was like, this is my truth. You know, this is so my truth. Um, Thanks, 
Yeah. A hundred percent. So it was a, a totally a should, and also a little bit of an F you because, you know, people will make certain assumptions based on the way I look and it would not be that I should be in an investment firm, which of course made me want to be in an investment firm even more. Uh, so I was there for several years and my boss took me aside and he said, listen, you're smart. So you could, you know, you can do this if you want, but it's going to be like putting your head through a brick wall every day. And you're, you know, what I recommend, I just, this like a mentor kind of piece of advice is like, you should do something where you're not working on Excel and you should do something where you're interacting with people more. And of course, at the time that was just heartbreaking, but it ended up being such good advice. Um, I thought about what I really liked and the only thing I could think of was news. And so I got a job working on the television side of Bloomberg, which is, you know, obviously owned by Michael Bloomberg, who at the time was the mayor of New York, but it's a finance news channel. And um, that was my first job in journalism, covering international markets for them. That's so Something cool. my dad likes to remind me of too, because, you know, we'll talk about this, but then I went on to get a television show in a very different topic. And then I wrote a book about modern manhood. And my dad always says, uh, what happened there? Because I thought you were really into international politics. And I'm like, there is nothing more international nor political about sex and gender. <laughs> so, Amen. Yeah. Um, so I worked at Bloomberg for several years and then got poached by Univision, which at the time had partnered with Disney to launch a... English speaking network called Fusion for Millennials. And they brought me on as a health correspondent. And uh, actually, this is like, this is an important part of my story. And I think it would probably resonate with people. You certainly talk about this in Solbatical, but I think I was in my, you know, I was around 27 at the time. And I always wanted my own TV show. Huh. And I thought, the orange it's, couch, baby. Have you been the, hearing me? I was just going to say, so when you sent me that email the other day, I was like, oh, I can help you with that. Like, I know all about this. But um, it was such a reach goal that I thought either I'll never achieve it or at best I'll get it in my late 40s or something. And I'll just spend the next couple of decades in working in that direction. And then through like a series of fortunate events for me, I got offered a television show of my own and obviously was like, hell yes. So um, I became, you know, we, the reason why it happened was because I had a very successful digital video series, which were- I was just going to say like, and, and it's not luck, right? It's fortunate, yeah. it's synchronicity and serendipity because you're showing up and putting yourself out there and doing yeah. great work. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And following a, the breadcrumbs of what yeah. lights you up, which is a big part of it. Totally. And basically, um, one thing I'm very good at is reading the tea leaves of cultural movements and cultural trends. And in 2014, which was only seven years ago, but feels like dog years for what we have been through for the last, you know, seven years. So I'll just remind you at the time. President Obama was still in office. 
the Supreme Court had just legalized same-sex marriage. Oh my God. And Tinder, which was created in 2011, by 2014, it had just started to hit the mainstream. I mean, it's so ubiquitous now, like you can't re- remember a time when it didn't exist. Oh. But at the time, people were like, oh my God, what is happening? And people just thought, oh my God, we are going to hell in a handbasket. No one's going to have babies anymore. It's all just going to be this like debaucherous, like everyone having sex with everybody. And oh my God, I just happened to see all of these colliding cultural shifts. And what we did know, right, was that Um, It's not the first time that there have been cultural colliding shifts, but it was the first time that the internet was also in everyone's home and smartphones. So people were all turning to YouTube to be like, is this normal? What the hell is this? What am I doing? And I created a show based on this exact time. We were like, okay, let's actually go across the country talking to people about these really intimate details of their personal lives that they normally would never speak about but we know we're all running to Google to be like, what the hell is this? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a show and it was the second best performing show on the whole network. Uh, we were nominated for a Peabody Award, which is yeah. journalism's, you know, besides the Pulitzer is the most highest um, honor you can receive. And an incredible honor to be simply nominated, my oh, friend. Oh, I know, I know. It's like, Ooh. you know how people, they'll be like Jennifer Lawrence, Academy Award nominated. Like just to be nominated is so incredible. You know, and for my first television show, like that ain't bad. I'll take that. Rarified air, rarified air. Yeah. And your television show was called Sex Right Now, right? Sex Right Now with Cleo Stiller. I love it. Yeah. Cue my dad being like, I'm sorry, what? I love it. That reminds me when Glennon Doyle is like, you know, when she did her first TED talk and it was like the things I learned in, you know, in the psychiatric ward. And she's like, yeah, still not making my parents proud. Yeah. (laughs) Really, truly. I mean, yeah, he's proud now, but the title I will just say, um, and this is why it helps to be not only creative, but strategic. The initial title of the show was Asking for a Friend, which is an amazing title and great. And I had come up with that one as well. But when we were moving from digital to TV, what occurred to me is like, okay, people like this isn't this isn't how I get my television, but I also just watch Hulu. But people that were watching on cable Remember you just like flip through the TV guide and you would like see titles pop up. Yes. And we knew for a new show, you need a title that people are going to be like, oh, I need to see what that is. And I knew sex right now, ain't no one gonna not check that out. And yeah. then the and we were right. That's a pause all scrolling moment. Yes. A hundred percent. And I would hear about this for years while I was hosting the show. People would like, tweet me on Twitter or hit me up on Instagram and be like, I was just scrolling through the TV guide. And I thought this is going to be some crazy show, but I love your show and I'm learning so much. So thank you so much. Um, so that was the show. And And it was like health and sexuality and dating. And so you were playing in that intersection. Exactly. It was this confluence of (sighs) same sex marriage has just been legalized. online dating has just hit the mainstream. 
Um, you know, and we, and we had our, at the time, our first black president in his second term, like it really was, and millennials, right? People can stop talking about millennial culture, millennial culture. So that was, that was the show. And that spurred what would become sort of one of my expertise, which is, um, really talking to people openly about topics that we usually are very uncomfortable talking about. Um, and one of the reasons I think I can do that so well is because I really do approach um, my storytelling with this sort of like no shame, no stigma attitude. And I think people feel that um, and they really think they can trust me with their stories. And so I'm, you know, been very fortunate that people do tell me stuff where I'm like, you know, I'm about to like put this on live television or like, this is going to go in a book. Right. But that's, yeah, that's the blessing. It is. Well, and the power of storytelling. I mean, you do such a brilliant job in the book and I know we'll get to the, the yeah. moment where it's like, oh, it suddenly became clear to you. Like I have an opportunity to, yeah. really dig into what does it mean to be a good man today after Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement, all that. So I want to, I want to talk about that kind of inflection point that really threw you into the deep end of being an advocate for that. But you really do such a beautiful job of telling stories and sharing others' stories in a really raw and unvarnished and honest way. And you, I mean, that's how I wrote my book. That's how I yes. live my life. Yes. That's, yes. I believe that those are tenants of the rebel souls community. And so, I mean, already that just, I was just like, Oh, she's my people. And I really appreciate that. And thank you. And especially in a day and age where media, most media is anything, but that it feels so good. And I'm so grateful that there are voices like yours. I love that vulnerabilities already come up because it was one of my big takeaways from your book in terms of the, of the importance of how men and women show up in the yeah. world, and in particular men with empathy and vulnerability, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. So can you tell us about the inflection point that kind of led you into becoming, you know, the voice of modern manhood that you now are? And I know that's opening a lot of doors for other social change. And that really excites me. So how did that happen? And then let's dig into the yumminess. I mean, I'll, I'll share with you when we get there, some of my takeaways beyond empathy and vulnerability, but I want to talk about these and just explore it a little bit more for our audience. Absolutely. So I'm hosting the television show that we were just talking about sex right now. It's performing extremely well. And then bam, 2017, the Harvey Weinstein scandal breaks and the Bill Cosby, which is, it's very appropriate. Actually, we're having this conversation because I have chills because yesterday the, uh, I'm still speechless. I'm having actually a really hard time talking about it, but the fact yeah. that he is now free after yeah. all of that is a very scary, scary, scary statement about where our culture is today and how many steps backwards it feels like we just took. Truly, truly. So uh, yeah, the worker is very much ongoing, clearly. Um, mm. But at that point, yeah. right, these scandals had just broke. 
And Me Too, which had been around for years prior to this, but had not been on sort of mainstream consciousness, um, that became a trending hashtag. And in the year subsequent to that, from 2017 into 2018, all people could talk about was how in some way Me Too had like sent ripple effects through all areas of our personal lives um, and people were questioning everything. And you had women and survivors very openly sharing their stories and talking to each other and having really important, not only just sharing, right? Because I think one of the things that the current system of power does to us that's so unfair is it makes you feel that you're alone in your experience. Or even if you know that it's more common, you feel powerless to do anything about it. And so for people to share and realize I'm not alone, this is happening on such a widespread level, what can be done about it? Uh, There were some really good ideas being generated in these conversations. And I knew that, right, because my job and I was being invited to speak at many of these events and inevitably at them, people would kind of look around the room and be like, uh, where are all the men? Men don't care. And meanwhile, my show was split about like 60% male, 40% female. And so I always had a pretty good read on what both men and women all over the country were saying. And I had men pouring into my inbox to say, are you going to do a season on this? Because I have so much to say about what's happening right now, but I'm afraid to say anything because I don't want to get in trouble. And then they would ask me a question. It'd be like a guy saying, you know, I'm recently divorced. And I am terrified to approach women. I feel like all the social etiquette rules that got me married to begin with are now out the window. What do I do? I had new fathers writing me, telling me, I don't know what it means to raise a good man anymore. I'm hearing what people are talking about. And I'm thinking, damn, my dad really fucked up. Like, am I going to, what am I taking from my father? What am I leaving behind? What am I doing to my kid? Um, And of course, you know, as coming from Bloomberg, I had a lot of sourcing from Wall Street and small businesses across America. And I had, I had guys saying to me, listen, I don't want to cop to this on the record, but you know, I have a lot of employment power and I don't want to hire new female staff. It's not worth the risk. Mm -hmm. And I sure as hell, I'm not going to mentor my current female staff. Like, you know, I had one guy tell me, Uh, you know, my wife straight up told me I'm not allowed to talk to any woman on my team who's below the age of 45. And as a, you know, a young woman, like rising through the corporate um, ranks myself, I just thought we can't have this. Well, it's devastating because it continues the vicious cycle of the patriarchy. Yes. So it just was like, Whoa. And I thought, I mean, like my head was going to explode because you have these very siloed conversations of women and survivors on the one hand, you have men on the other hand, and never the two shall meet. And so I thought not only as a journalist was this an incredible opportunity, but as a human, I could not see this moment in time and not say like, okay, we have to bring, we got to like flood this a little bit and people have to come together. And so Modern Manhood, the book, is uh, 
you know, I is the amalgamation of my reporting over a couple a year. Um, I spoke to 100 men across the country, ranging from 18 to 62, That's from awesome. rural North Carolina to Oakland and everywhere in between. And um, and a lot of original reporting and research about how we got to where we got, because these questions that people have, like we're all living in the gray area, basically. And so the book upon being published was picked up everywhere because everyone, you know, I mean, LinkedIn excerpted the chapter on the modern workplace, Fortune magazine excerpted the chapter on women, men, and money for this generation. Uh, Cosmo took the sex chapter. So it's really everywhere because it is culturally relevant to everyone. Yes. Yeah. And, and I do love, I mean, you've said this, but what's really cool is you took all of these hundred interviews with this broad swath of men and you looked at every facet of their lives. And so you did, you divided the book up between friendship dating, you mentioned work, money, sex, parenting. And, and as I was reading through this, there were so many through lines between all of those. And it was like, I just, I just was like, first of all, how did it take me so long to read your book? (laughs) And second of all, holy shit. Yeah. And one of the, so can we talk about, okay, let's dig in. So you write this book, everyone's picking this thing up. We'll eventually get to COVID, which kind of fucked both of us when it came to like the timing of launching our books or whatever. But I don't want to take us down that rabbit hole because we've been down that rabbit hole. And I'm just really glad that we're here to support each other because the world finds great work. And you and I are both proof of that. And we keep showing up every day in spite of the challenges. And that is a lesson for all of us. So for everybody listening, keep showing up in spite of, and maybe because of the challenges that you're facing. This is, this is such good work. And so I want to go, let's start in the place of like, one of my big takeaways was like, wow, the way men have been educated as to what it means to be quote a man. And I'm doing air quotes because I read, I think you had, what is it? The man box that you showed in the book. And I was like, what the fuck is this man box? And oh my God, this man box is like the root of all evil and of our problems in society. Maybe you can read a little bit about what the man box is, but it really, it made me realize that it's like, wow, yeah, men for generations in our history have not been taught to embrace their feelings and their emotions and empathy and vulnerability and all of this stuff. This is all really new. It's so this is like the crazy thing. And this is, I'm telling you as a woman, as a reporter, um, as someone who cares passionately about the health and well-being of others, including myself, I was shocked to learn the depth um, with which we as a society put men in, as you mentioned, the man box. And we make jokes, you know, like there's a joke in my family. Dad has no friends. Mom has tons of friends and dad has the dog. And it's funny. And like, I'll tell you anecdotally, you know, if you ever get on a dating app, Shelly, um, there's almost always like a prompt that is says, you know, 
put a picture with your best friend and more times than you would think it will be a photo of a man and a dog. And it seems funny and also a little sweet, but what is, what really that belies is the fact that men generally speaking are only allowed to express one emotion and that emotion is anger. And if you think about it, right, if you've ever seen a man cry, it's probably very startling. And if you've ever seen a man giggle, you've also probably made a thought about that as well. The one emotion that we do attribute to masculinity is anger and fury and rage. And when I started interviewing men, I was so unaware of this, but so many men feel frustrated and isolated and like the weight of the world is on their shoulders and no one sees it and no one cares. It's really profound for women to hear that because in the prevailing narrative that we have about how women and men are in society, we say men are on top and women are the bottom and women suffer and men are doing great. Yet if you ask most men and they're being honest, they will tell you that they feel like the weight of the world is on their shoulders and no one sees it. And they don't necessarily have a safe place or support to be able to express it. That's what I was really taking away as well. It's like, I've been put in this man box that I just pulled it out, pulled your book out. Let me read a couple of these things. I think it's really important for everybody to understand. So the man box says, do not cry openly or express emotions. I mean, that alone just, it it honestly makes me want to cry and puke all at the same time. Like it just makes me sick to my stomach. Do not express weakness or fear. Demonstrate power and control, especially over women. Aggression dominance, which is what you said. Protector. Do not be quote unquote, like a woman, which I'm guessing also has to do with crying and showing your emotion, right? Or full range of emotion. Um, Heterosexual. Do not be quote unquote, like a gay man. Oh, I mean, you know, you make decisions. You don't need help. You view women as property and objects. I mean, that's the basic gist of it. I think you guys all get it. And I'm knowing this community because they're like you and I, there's like, like I felt some rage around reading that on behalf of my brethren. Yeah. And okay. And just so folks know, the man box um, is a concept that people who work in men's work um, they use it to talk to men. It's like a little hard to just talk to men, like right off the bat about intimate, vulnerable topics because they're not used to it. And so the man that has sort of updated the man box and uses it quite frequently, his name is Tony Porter and Tony Porter works with the NFL, the NBA, the NHL. He works with every major sports league in the country working with these players, because if you I mean, like we, you know, we look towards sports figures sort of as our map um, of masculinity. I'm not sure why, but that's what we do. And he works with these players to help them update their man box definition. But that's, that's the definitions. Those are the qualities that they relate to. Yeah. And it's so, so what happens with the man box is the idea is 
if you're a man and you meet those qualities, then you live safely within the box and society rewards you for being a man's man, for being masculine, for being strong and assertive. Um, you're more likely to get promoted. You're, you know, I mean, men also believe just on a personal level. I heard so many men be like, you women say you, you know, you say you want a sensitive, thoughtful, vulnerable man, but I'll tell you the net, nice, nice guys always finish last. Men truly, truly believe that. Every time that you do not exhibit one of those qualities, you live outside the box and you get dinged each time by society. And what's really interesting about the man box is when I was interviewing men, I think most of us would probably make the assumption that younger men would be much more progressive and older men would be much more conservative. And sometimes that was true. But when it came to the man box, I had several interviews with men in their 60s and they told me, listen, your younger generation has this like language is like a whole vocabulary around this stuff that I, I don't get, like I didn't grow up with it, but I sure as hell got dinged every time I didn't fit in that box. And that is something that's timeless. So spans generations. And the idea is, um, this is also an opportunity for, for women too, because women also hold men to the man box standard. And one way that it's really important for us to move forward as women and men is to see that, you know, we have this idea, like the overall takeaway of the book, Modern Manhood, um, is men were asking me like, like, what does a good guy do in this situation? Like X, Y, Z. And what I say is worry less about what a good man does, worry less about what a good woman does and get really clear on what a good person does. Yes. Because we were all raised with the idea of the man box and that will fuck you up. Put it out of your head. And instead, so this quest, I mean, this one comes up all the time. And it's so amazing. It's like guys really worry about whether or not to hold the door open for the woman coming up behind them. Because they, they all told me this story about, they were like, this happened to a friend of mine where like he held the door open and the woman just lost it on him. In that situation, right? you have a lot of, you have agency, right? Like, do you want to hold the door open for the person coming up behind you? Whoever that person is. Whoever it is. Hopefully you say yes, because that's what a good person does. So now don't worry if it's a woman or a man or like a puppy running up, hold the door for whoever is coming up behind you. Yes. And should someone lose their shit at you when you do that, you won't be taken aback. You won't question, oh my God, am I not a good person? Because you've already thoroughly vetted your behavior and you can just say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I hold the door open for anyone coming up behind me. And yes. you move right along. It totally, I was thinking about like the golden rule, right? Do unto others. Like that's how I think about my actions in the world. And believe me, I'm not holding myself up as a poster child that I know how to do all of this stuff, but it, that's what came up for me. I wrote down in my notes, I love that you took us here because I wrote down, take gender out of it, out of the mentoring, out of the providing, out of the money, out of all of it, right? Out of you know, it's not chivalry. It's like, is that how I want to treat other people? Is that how I would like to be treated regardless of gender? I don't care where you sit on the spectrum. Yes. 
Yes. A hundred percent. That was a huge takeaway from me. And I was like, what a beautiful way to look at it. Because you also said when you were talking about, you know, marriage and partnerships and dating, it was like, what if you approached all of this with a team mentality instead of the current way we do it, where it's like man and woman are kind of coming together. It's just like, blah. Yes. Right. Because there's just a notion we've set women and men up to be in these sort of like adversarial, um, you know, it's very hard right now to talk about like polarity and energies and blah, blah, blah. Um, but brass taxes, it's, it can be very adversarial and it doesn't have to be like that. And also in order to make things simple, which I've also learned over reporting this men love just simple simpleness just like boil it down for me right? let's be honest we all love simple all, like the world's too fucking complicated doesn't <laughs> just give me like a well, like a two sentence on it as like so the more you worry about like oh well what does the man do or like what's a man's role in this like don't worry about that what does a good person do what's the good person do how do you treat other people and then it's really simple because I do like to have the door held open for me. And I also, I'm going to hold the door open for anyone coming up behind me and it makes everyone's lives much easier. Yeah. It's, it's such a biggie when we start to take it out and go, Oh, well, wait a second. This is just, how do you want to treat people in the world? And what if, I mean, let's go back to the workplace for a second, because some of those statistics, like when you said it, right. When, if we've got men in power who are like, I refuse to mentor or be alone with, or have that really important, you know, conversation with or coach or whatever, other women who are are women who are rising in the ranks, or let's, let's just say women and others who are not in power because ultimately it's bigger than simply women. Right. That scares the shit out of me because how do we ever start to tip the scales and get the representation at the top? I mean, let's just talk about like at the top of the fortune 500, let's just start there. Absolutely. So this comes up a lot, right? Because what surveys found was in the year between 2018 and 2019. So just timeline, what I love timelines because I'm a journalist. You're so 20, good at it. Yeah. You're helping me like pull along. So keep pull doing it. Pull it all out, right? Yeah. Okay. 2017, the Me Too movement via the Harvey Weinstein scandal breaks. At its start, it was just really stories about very powerful, very rich men abusing other women who are also now fairly powerful and also wealthy. So there was a way wherein the average American or average person around the world could look at those stories and be like, ooh, that's really bad, but that would never happen. That doesn't apply to me because I'm not a movie star and I don't live in Hollywood. But by 2018, it had rippled to all of us. And, you know, I mean, like I talk about in the book, I don't, I hadn't never really thought of myself as being in inappropriate workplace settings, but through the lens of the the Me Too movement, every single place I worked, holy shit. So by 2018, 2019, this was very important. So in 2018, about 40% of, I think it was like 30 to 40% of men um, said, 
they were worried about being falsely accused of inappropriate behavior at the workplace. 30, I, let's say like around 30%. By 2018, I'm sorry, by 2019, that number had doubled. And it was higher, it was over 60% as you got higher in seniority. So as you got to the VP status, right? And what we know, of course, is that the higher you get, the more power you have, the more employment power, um, the more you define the culture of your company, of your industry even. And so these men, the higher they were, felt like they had the farther to fall. And they said, listen, there's going to be a backlash for women because all the guys were saying it like, you know, this was, I talk about this in the book, but I went out just for a, you know, we call it an, a background um, interview where you, you're not going to like source them directly, but you can use the information they tell you as background information to go report other sources on the record. Right. So I went on, on, a, on the background drinks with a couple of venture capitalists, two from California, one from New York, all men of incredibly important companies. They said, yeah, I mean, we talk about this all the time, like amongst themselves, this me too thing is going to be terrible for women. And I just, and they said it like, not like it was my fault personally, but like, you'll see, it's going to be terrible for women as if they had no agency in that. And I'm like, you don't have to contribute to that, you know? No, it's like when you're a celebrity and you have a massive platform and you're not using that to speak out for something that you believe in or for good or for social change or for whatever it is, right? <sighs> right. So like you are an active participant in this, right? And that was part of why I wrote the chapter how I did and why I think it did so well for LinkedIn because here's also what I heard from men. Uh, generally speaking, it's important for people to think, they think of themselves as good people, right? And they don't want their neighbors to not thrive. And so what I offer to men um, who are at these levels, right? And run teams is to get really clear on what kind of person you are. And if you now know, also by reading the work chapter, that this is the situation women and people who are not in power are experiencing. And you have the ability to change that. Don't you want to put your foot down now and start making the necessary changes so that in 10 years, we are not having this same conversation. And, you know, even I think it's helpful to personalize it. Like if you are a father who's in the corporate workspace and you're raising a daughter you certainly don't want her to deal with the same things women my age are dealing with right now, right? And so what I offer in the workplace is to get comfortable being uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. you're gonna fuck up. You're gonna fuck up. We talk about this in the book, but the modern workplace was not built for women and men to exist equally. When women, when we created the corporate structure, men were supposed to be in positions of power and women only came in after World War II because they'd gotten used to working in the workspace while men were fighting. But when women were allowed to come in, it was just as secretaries and support roles. And, you know, everyone talks about mad men, but that wasn't so long ago. And even though we've adjusted things, we haven't had this full, like, come to Jesus moment where it's like, 
yeah, okay. I guess those golf trips on the weekends, like, oh, that might be tough for people. Even drinks at work, you don't think about it. But when you get drinks after work, that becomes very difficult for people who caretake for their home. And who caretakes for their home? It's usually women. So drinks at after work, where I don't know, for me in journalism, all my networking really happened, like not in the office, it was after. Oh God, you know? I came from the world of advertising and marketing. Yes. Are you kidding? The entire thing was like a booze fest. Exactly, exactly. And it's fun, but it becomes very exclusionary for anyone who has family responsibilities, which usually falls to women. So there are the, all of these micro things, adjustments that you can make. And if folks are interested about this, let me know. I do a really wonderful workshop on how you can adjust your team dynamic. Oh yeah. But um. There's so many changes we can make and we don't expect people to know how to do it all at once because we're making new rules now as we go. But it's so important that we do because to have 60% of men at a VP level feeling like I'm not winding up on an HR case, hell no. I'm just not talking to my female staff. We can't have that. Like we can't have that. No, we can't go anywhere with that. I mean, you know, suddenly it's like the glass ceiling just dropped four feet, right? Exactly. Oh, which doesn't, I mean, that just, again, that just makes me feel sick. I love that you, you know, I love how you talk about it and we'll make sure that we, we talk about how people can find you because I didn't even know you were doing those workshops. Bravo sister. That makes me so happy. There's so much we have to learn about how to operate and a lot of people in the rebel souls community, men and women alike are leaders in organization. So it's going to be wildly helpful to read this book and learn more from you because the practical stuff matters. I would love to talk about, I know, I mean, I just, I feel like I could talk to you for a week and I've, again, like, I'm so grateful I have you in my life so I can talk to you anytime I want. And I want to make the most of like all of the yumminess that you have to offer. And so let me tell you about one other thing that kept coming to me and you hit this right on the head in the book as well is how all of this is contributing to the mental health crisis amongst men. And I know this is where I have chills just saying this to you. This is where you and I, like our deep passions and the work that comes from our soul, we intersect right in the crosshairs of mental health awareness and, you know, care for all. And I really was struck by how much of an issue this is because men often don't have one because of the man box education, right? And expectation. And two, because men don't often have that support, that safe and brave space to go where they feel like they're they're held and they can even explore these things and talk about these things. And you and I are, you know, we are very fortunate to have people like the co-founders of Tether in our lives, which is a mental health app for men. And many people who followed me know I'm a huge advocate. You have done a lot of stuff with Tether as well. 
And you talk about some men who are leading really incredible work, like the everyman work really stuck out for me. But let's kind of back up because maybe you can give some stats on this mental health crisis. And then like, how can we, we as women and we as men in this community, like what can we do about this? Because this is the shit that just scares me, that it literally drives people to end their lives. Yeah. It, so what we talk about in the book is I never use the term toxic masculinity because while reporting the book, when the term would come up, men would just glaze over or freeze, right? And I didn't want men, like this book is for men, it's for women as well, but I didn't want them to think this is like an attack on men. It certainly is not. Setting aside the term toxic masculinity, a lot of men might not cops to this publicly, but they'll feel this because we only allow men to express one emotion very freely and that's anger. And also we uh, teach boys to be to in male. I mean, my favorite chapter of this book is male friendships. Um, Interestingly, Men know this, right? Like when you get together with your guy friends, well, first every guy will tell you, like, I, I find it nearly impossible to make a male friend after college. Like if I lost touch with my college friends, like that's it for me. Um, and one of the reasons why is because with male friendship, um, they're largely based on you, the your way you express your friendship is jokes and like a little bit of ribbing and competition and like sports are very helpful. And so there's not a lot of opportunity for men to say how they feel or to feel how they feel. And newsflash, men are human. So of course, y'all have tons of really in-depth emotions and you have nowhere to put it. So when I started reporting this book, one thing I thought that was extremely sort of terrifying was that the American Psychological Association, um, which is the largest association affiliation for healthcare providers, um, in the country in 2017, they put out a mandate to their practitioners, their members saying masculinity as it's conventionally understood is unhealthy for men. It is Mm. unhealthy for men. And if you are a, you know, a counselor and you counsel male patients, you need to know that the way we are telling men they have to be men is lethal to their well-being. And what we what they pointed to is something called deaths of despair. And deaths of despair um, is a medical term used to describe deaths related to suicide, drug, and alcohol abuse. And deaths of despair are astronomically on the rise for men, specifically. There's this way, right, where I think that the conversation around like quote unquote toxic masculinity in some ways hurt us because it it just made the conversation feel um, like it was really attacking men when really we act like, like I said, like men have everything they could ever want. So why would you ever... Um, pay attention to them, listen to them, hear what they're really thinking or feeling. And now healthcare providers are, when they're counseling men, they're having to think like, okay, 
we know that this is something plaguing our whole country. And if you ask a lot of men, they might not know. Again, this harkens back to like my sex right now reporting, but here in modern manhood, you might not know how you're feeling is actually happening on such a wide scale. But if you look at the mental health of men as they move from their 30s to 40s, there is such a strong uh, decrease in reported happiness in their lives and satisfaction. And we don't really talk about it. Yeah. So when I was reporting this book, I will just say there was sort of this like chorus happening where um, I'll just name a couple, right? But The Hidden Brain, which is one of the best podcasts put out by NPR, they did a whole episode on masculinity and what, what we do to men does to your brain activity. Esquire, which is a pretty damn good magazine, yeah. did a whole issue on men and masculinity and mental health. Um, you may have heard of Bruce Springsteen and the former president, Barack Obama. They have a new podcast out and they do a whole episode talking about manhood and fatherhood and the pressure that they feel and what they're bringing from the past. Like this is an extremely hot topic. Now. And now, so Justin Baldoni wrote Man Enough and his new podcast, Man Enough, just launched. I was so curious if you were digging into that one. I love his work. I was just DMing with him and I was like, if you don't get me on this podcast, I'm going to be so annoyed. Oh, sister, I'll go, I'm going to go beat him up if he doesn't. I <laughs> he doesn't agree. You I on. agree. So it's a hot topic now, but I still think, um, it has yet to really like uh, trickle down um, and start changing behavior on an everyday level, but that's where we're at. It's a lot, and I guess what I what I would say, and I'm curious, like what recommendations, especially you know the you know there are a lot of women. I would say our our communities probably you know 75 percent women, twenty five thirty percent men. You know, especially for you know the women who are listening, like what can we do to support the men in our lives? Because finding a tether or an every man or, you know, listening to somebody like Justin Baldoni or listening to Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama. Like those are all amazing ways, but you really, you need to connect live. Like the healthiest men I've met as I've been on this journey for the past five years are the ones who are in male support groups who meet every week and talk about yeah. this stuff and yeah. really like link arms and go, we're on this journey together and we're here for each other and let's let it out. So would you agree with that? Women ask me all the time, like, what is the most important thing I need to know about modern manhood? And I was like, get the men in your life connected to a men's group. And I say to your, to the women who are looking for men in their life, just go find a local chapter of a men's group and station yourself right outside their door because I recommend women only date men who are in men's groups. That's brilliant. Oh my God, you just outlined my dating strategy. Seriously, only date men who are in men's groups because they hold each other accountable in this way. Like, okay, women, all right, this is a scenario I always like to play out. This will sound familiar to any women listening and to every man listening for women. You ever been in a fight with your male partner and you look at him directly in the eye and you say, just tell me what you're thinking. 
which for you is such an easy question because you have been socialized to not only talk about your feelings, but feel your feelings your whole life. Men have never been taught that, right? They have been taught to push that all down. And what most of us don't realize is that verbalization is a critical part of the human cognition process. So when you don't talk about things, when you don't talk about your feelings, 30 years into the game, you forgot you had those feelings. You can't identify those feelings. So from the man's perspective, that very simple question to you, which women almost always deliver with like a real ferocity. Guilty. Hello. (laughs) I know. (laughs) For a guy, he's like a deer in headlights because you're just coming all up in him, asking him something that no one has asked him in 30 years. Mm. And so for him, he wants to bolt and get the hell out of there because he has no idea. And for you, you take that as a sign of like, wow, we are so disconnected. We have nothing to say to each other. He can't even tell me how he feels. While not realizing, oh my gosh, and coming to this situation with compassion of, My partner has been socialized to live a life where he can't even identify what he's feeling right now. Yeah. And I think that that is so important for women to understand because we, I didn't know about this and it really helped contextualize so many, um, communication disagreements I've had with men where I feel like this is hopeless not realizing that this is something that they don't, they haven't been allowed to feel, to talk. And so one thing I hear from women a lot is like, oh, I feel like I like his wife, his mother, his nurse, his therapist, his, you know, like you feel women feel like they wear so many hats with the men that they interact with. And you're right. You do. You wear all of them. And one of the ways to offset that is to get men and men do this, like you also don't like your wife or your female boss also being your therapist and your nanny. And like, no one likes that. Right. So men with more robust social interactions with other men lean on their male friends for a lot more than, and then you can really just be the wife or the boss or the colleague, and you're not wearing so many hats. So that's my big recommendation. Come with compassion and get ye to a men's group. Get ye to a men's group. <laughs> I love that. And then as humans, get, getting back to the degendering thing, let's all practice empathy and vulnerability and compassion together. And no, you are going to fuck up. Like there's no way you won't but you are doing it for the greater good so that in 10 years, the generations that is coming up behind us, like I'll tell you, I interviewed women who were in their sixties and they kind of were like, you don't realize how good you have it. One woman specifically told me, you seem pretty tough. So I'm surprised that this is an issue you care about speaking to me. She was like, when I was your age, every boss I ever had put his hand on my skirt. And so there was this feeling like we've come so far 
what are you complaining about? But I mean, I detail this in the book, like I worked with Charlie Rose. I worked with an executive producer who tried to take me to bed. And when I said, no, I lost my first international assignment. Like I'll never know what could have happened. You know, I had my first boss at the investment firm. It was a biotech investment firm. And uh, we invested in uh, breast implant companies. And so he would have a silicon breast implant and a saline breast implant right on the front of his desk. And he would pick them up when women came into the thing and he'd be like, which one do you want? Which one would you want? Hold this up. What feeling do you, right? And this, you know, right. These are nothing, but this is just like, it's so prevalent, right? And so- Well, and PS, they're not nothing, but we were trained to believe that they were nothing. Exactly. You're like, oh, this is just the part of doing business as a woman. Let us not be having to say that in 10 years, you know? And so for that, get comfortable being uncomfortable. There's more practical tips to everyday stuff in the book. And and again, I'm happy to do workshops with people on this. I love it. But really um, the overarching message is we have such a great opportunity right now because we are in a huge point of social upheaval. And with everyone having worked from home for the last year, as we re-enter the workplace, holy smokes, there is like a lot can change, right? But if we don't do the work now, I just, you know, in 10 years, I don't want to have this conversation. I do not want to be repeating this conversation. When I'm sitting on the orange couch and you're sitting next to me and you and I are talking about what Cleo has been up to for the past 10 years, which won't be the next time we talk, but of course it'll be an important time that we talk. We're not going to be having this same conversation. My hope is that we are celebrating all of the progress that we've made because there is a heightened awareness and and wokeness. I know sometimes I cringe even when I say that word around all of this. And I think that's really important. And thank you for leading the way. And I just, I want to put like, I guess I just want to like pound my fist around one of the things you said, like there is no time in life. There is no topic. There is no, there's no nothing. Growth comes from being, allowing yourself to get uncomfortable, period. Mm, 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 mm. Period. We don't grow if we aren't pushing outside of our comfort. And I feel like these days it's really cliche, but as you said it again, in the context of what you're rebelling for, it landed so deeply that it's like, fuck that. It's not cliche. It is what every one of us are being called to do every day. We're not, I think Brene says, and God forbid that a, s- a single episode passed by and I don't quote Sister Brene. Oh, so Brene. here we go. We so her. here we go. Right, exactly. But she says like, it's not about being right. So stop trying to be right. It's about getting it right. And that's trying and failing and making the mistakes and being open to learn, right? And that's exactly what you're saying. And that is uncomfortable as fuck. What's next for you? And then how can people find you? Because I know a little bit about what you're up to. Can you give us a teaser and then tell all of our fellow rebel souls how they can connect more deeply with you and get you in on some of these workshops? Because God knows we all need them. Yeah, absolutely. So you're catching me at a (laughs) like, we optioned the book to turn it into a television show. We pitched it. To 
Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. And I really just found out that we didn't sell it on this round. So this is a lesson for all of us. Instead of locking myself away in a closet for the next month, I'm hosting Crooked Media does Pod Save America. It's one of the largest podcasts in Amazing. I'm guest hosting uh, their daily news show called What a Day. But I think for your community, if this is resonating for you, please do get in touch because I'm doing some other work that we could do together. I do do corporate workshops on, you know, the new etiquette in the modern workplace, which as people are coming back from working remotely for a year, I have had so many people reach out to me and be like, I haven't worn pants in a year and a half. Holy cow. I am worried about my team dynamics. I'm worried about our team culture and coming out of the year that we've come out of, not just because of COVID, but because of very important social movements. I do not want to be on the wrong side of history here. Like how do I need to get in shape for this. So please contact me um, about corporate work for that. And then also if you're a business mind or you also have a mission and you really want to turn it into um, a media project, whether it be a book, a podcast, a blog, a movie, maybe a movie, maybe a movie, get in touch because one thing that I'm really enjoying now as well is, you know, it was very I was fortunate in that in being in journalism, um, I always had this clear path for, okay, here's a mission I'm on. Here's something I want to project to the world. And it was like, oh, great. Well, that's your job. So good. But not everyone has that. And so many of us have really important messages to get out in the world. And it's intimidating. Oh my God, I don't know. How do I get a book deal? How do I launch this? voice, this IP. Um, and so I started working with people to help them do that in a way that really makes an impact. Um, and I love that. Oh, sister, I didn't know you were doing that work. And that just gives me the chills and the warm fuzzies. Oh my God, please help more people do that. You know, it's like part of my whole rebelling for is who we are, what we want, and what you just talked about, the impact we want to have in the world and more of us telling our stories and speaking our truth exactly as you've done, as I've done, as so many other rebel souls have done. And let's inspire each other to keep doing that. And thank you for being at the tip of the spear of that good stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. What are your socials? We'll be sure to include them, but will you just shout them out so people can follow you and connect with you there? Great. Yep. Uh, I'm Cleo Stiller on every social channel that could possibly exist. And my website is cleostiller.net. If you head over there um, and put your email address in, my favorite chapter of the book will be sent to your email. And I could not be easier to get in touch with. I'm literally everywhere. So you're and you're so responsive too. Like you are a real human. Like neither one of us are people who are like, we have bots responding on our behalf. We're like, we're real humans in real dialogue and with all of the flaws and all the discomfort that that comes with. So I love it. I love it. Thank you, sister, for joining me. Like I look forward to 10 years later, on the orange couch, celebrating this revolution and all of these movements and this all being a distant freaking memory. 
Amen. I love it. Thanks rebel souls for tuning in. I hope you love Cleo as much as I do and that you're super inspired as to how you can play a role in modern manhood and moving us beyond the current crazy until next week. Bye. Hey rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow rebel souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at sylbatical.com and follow me at sylbatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass, and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?